Good morning, great to see you. Well done for braving the storm. Seems to have abated somewhat now. Some of you will notice we've installed a new water feature for you as well, just to bless you. Um, So as Richard said, we're continuing our Breathe In, Breathe Out series. This is the fourth week of that series. And in the series, we're looking at some rhythms of life. Just like breathing is an essential rhythm of life, breathing in, you've got to breathe in to breathe out. We're looking at rhythms of life that we would consider to be essential to the Christian life, to Christian discipleship. And these are all rhythms that we talk about on chapter one, which is our uh, termly discipleship small group experience um, that many, many people have done and another 50 people doing it this term. But these rhythms, are, they're essential, they're life-giving, but they're rhythms that can so easily be disrupted and pushed out of the way by the pace of life, by the demands on your life. Because life can sometimes feel like it is just one long breath out. When you've got lots going on, you're just breathing out, you're breathing out, you're breathing out because of the demands on you, the amount you're cramming into your life, the pace of your life, and it can be relentless, and it can feel exhausting, and it can feel disorientating. With the result being that some of the good things in life that will feed you, the things that you need, actually can start to feel like burdens and chores. So the rhythm of scripture is one that we've talked about a couple of weeks ago. That would be a great example of something that that can, can very easily feel like it's just another thing I've got to do. But actually it's something that feeds you. It's something we need. It brings life. It's like taking a breath in when you have a rhythm of scripture in your life, or the rhythm of prayer we talked about last week, it can feel like it's just another thing I've got to do, but it's actually life-giving. And it's in Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good. Let's not become weary of doing good and of receiving good, of, of the good things in life. Don't become weary of those things. There are other things we may need to become weary of and reprioritize. And that's what we have to do is prioritize how we spend our lives, prioritize our time to be able to take moments to stop and breathe in in order to be able to breathe out again. And this week, as Richard said, we're focusing on the rhythm of generosity. And so this one comes from a slightly different angle in that this is one of those things that we really should be breathing out. As, as Christians, generosity should be a hallmark of the Christian life. We should be breathing it out. But again, that's affected by what we're breathing in. And how often we're breathing in. And what we're feeding ourselves. Now my guess is that for many of you, you hear me say, well we're talking about generosity today. And you think, ah, he's going to talk about money. It's the money talk, isn't it? Well I do like talking about money. I'm certainly not afraid to talk about money. Jesus thought money was important enough to talk about it more than any other subject. Because he knows how easily money, materialism can really entrap us. Money, how we handle money is clearly a massively important part of generosity But it's not the only part. Money and how we use it is one currency. It's an important currency, but it's only one currency of generosity. It's one outworking of generosity. But really, generosity is a heart thing. It's a heart attitude. It's what's behind what we give in all sorts of different ways. It's a heart attitude. It's something which runs so deep within us that it really should permeate every area of our life, every, every part of our life, going through everything that we do. It's very possible to be generous with money, to be generous financially, but to still be fundamentally ungenerous, to not be radically generous. And by radical, I mean at your root. It's the Latin word radix means root, It's where we get radical from. At your core, to be generous right through your very being in your core. You can give a lot of money away and still not be radically generous and even be ungenerous. 
And so what I want to look at today is, first of all, how, uh, sorry, what is radical generosity? What, what does that look like in our lives? And then second, how do we get it? How do we become radically generous? What do we need to breathe in to be able to breathe out generosity? And we're going to do that by looking at Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 to 14. If you have a Bible, you can find it, Luke chapter 18. Um, and it might not be immediately obvious how this is linked to generosity, but we will get there, I, I trust. So from verse 9, it says this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have a tax collector and we have a Pharisee. Now I'm guessing that at no point in history have tax collectors been particularly popular people. But we have to understand that in, in this context, in the context into which Jesus is speaking, tax collectors are the scum of the earth. Really, I've seen it in that way. They are despised. They are loathed. They are hated as the scum of the earth because they were Jewish people working for the occupying power. They're working for the Romans. So they're seen as traitors, which is never a good thing to be seen as. In much the same way, if you know anything about the Second World War, uh, that a Nazi collaborator in France or in the Netherlands or any occupied country would have been seen in that way. You know, really shameful, really hated, really despised as traitors. So not only were they collecting taxes for Rome, which were pretty steep to start with, so that's not good off the bat, but tax collectors were also known for skimming off the top. So they would charge more than was necessary, pocket the difference themselves, and would then live pretty wealthy lifestyles as a result, trampling on others to feed their own, their own lifestyle. So these people are seen as parasites. They are hated, they were they were greedy. Tax collectors were greedy people. Then we have the Pharisee. And I guess in our context, we would hear the word Pharisee, and we would hear it as a negative term, the word Pharisee, because we sort of think, you know, boo, hiss, this is the villain of the piece here. This is the, this is the baddie in the story. But it certainly wouldn't have been heard like that by the people listening to Jesus telling this story. Partly because it seems clear there were lots of Pharisees in the crowd listening to him, so they wouldn't have thought of themselves in that way. But also because in, their, in that society, in that, in that general population, Pharisees were seen as people to be admired. These were devout men who, who studied scripture and obeyed scripture in scrupulous detail. And they were there to help people follow the law of God. Their heart was to, to help people follow it. And, and they, they were generous. They gave away 10%. He talked about tithing. It means giving away 10% of everything. So they were generous, they were seen like that. And so in Jesus' context, the Pharisee is a pillar of the community, somebody to be admired. Now, of course, Jesus, as he always does, sees beyond the outward appearance. He sees right through to the heart. And what we see in this parable are two different kinds of heart on display. 
And the contrast is really quite stark. So you have the Pharisee who's standing there, and he's standing in full view. He's standing there to be seen in a place of prominence. He's looking up to heaven. He's praying eloquently, and he starts his prayer with, God, I thank you. And you think, that's a good way to start a prayer. You know, we know, we read throughout Scripture how, how powerful and important thanksgiving to God is. So he says, God, I thank you. And you might expect then to hear a list of all the things that God has given him, that he's, he's grateful for, but that's not what we get. What you get is a list of his accomplishments. Thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like people who are beneath me. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. And, and I fast and, and I tithe. So this is a prayer that is outwardly addressed to God, but really he's speaking to himself about himself for other people to hear. And he's basically saying, thank you, God, that I am so wonderful. I am so great. He's adoring himself. He's praising himself and he's looking down on everybody else. And here's where generosity comes into the picture. Because you could look at this Pharisee, you could look at this man and think, well, he is, he is pretty generous. He gives away 10% of everything. That's a lot. That is a lot. Now, I know, of course, there are lots of people in this room who do, you give 10% at least, and some of you give a lot more than 10% to the work of the church. But you know that's not normal in the context of the wider world. Most people in the world do not give away 10% of everything they have, including those people who make a real point of giving away to to charity, to good causes, most people don't give away 10% of everything they have. So technically speaking, this Pharisee, you could say, he's generous. He gives away a lot. He gives away 10%. But I think it's clear to see that he is actually not radically generous in his core. He's not a generous person in his heart. It's a little bit like when you get someone who, who might give a lot away, but they really, really need people to know about it. You know, they, they need people to know how generous they are. They need a lot of praise for their generosity. Or maybe you get somebody who seeks to control those that he gives it to. You know, look at what I've done for you. Look how generous I've been to you. Now you owe me. You do this for me. I've been, I've been very generous to you and seeks to control. That's not generosity. This Pharisee is presenting his righteousness, his sense of self-righteousness, his fasting, his tithing as kind of badges of achievement or badges of moral character, or, or, or badges of generosity that in his mind should cause others to look at him with great favor. And ultimately, it should cause God to look at him with great favor. But of course, true generosity doesn't do that. True generosity doesn't seek thanks or appreciation or favor from others because that makes it more about what you get from the transaction. And that's not generosity. This man, this Pharisee, gives a lot away But he's not generous in heart. He's not generous in character. And let's just try and apply this to ourselves a little bit. As I said before, generosity has more than one currency. It's not just about money and how much we give away. And we see a great example of a different type of generosity straight after this parable in verses 15 to 17. Where it says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, the main point in that little passage there is not about generosity. It's about how we are to trust God with the simple faith and the simple humility of a child. But what else do we see happening here? What else is going on here? Why are the disciples stopping people bringing their children to Jesus? 
Well, because in their minds, this is an utter waste of Jesus' time. Babies and toddlers are not important. Jesus has far more important things to do. Don't waste his time. You need to invest your time in things that are important, in things that are going get, to get things back to you. Not, not in children. You'll get nothing back from that. But Jesus has completely the opposite attitude because he does stop. He is prepared to stop, even with all the demands that are placed on him, and to give his time. He invites the children to come to him because for him they are important people. They are worthy of him and, and his time and his attention. And so what you see is an extravagance in Jesus, a joyful extravagance. He doesn't have to give his time for these children. He chooses to do that. There's an extravagant generosity that we see in how Jesus uses his time. There's more than one currency of generosity. It's not just about money. If you are radically generous, if you're generous in your core, in your heart, in your very being, you won't only be generous with money. You will be generous with money, but not only with money. You'll be generous in all currencies of generosity, including those things that are actually most precious to you, the things that you really want to hold on to. And for some, that will be money, but for others, it will be different things. So, for example, uh, you might be happy to give money to a good cause, to, to support people who are less well-off than you. And actually, you do, every time you give to the church, you are giving money into that kind of thing. We have many ministries that are all about helping those who are less well-off, helping those who have less, helping people who are marginalized. So we're doing that all the time. But you can give money happily to that kind of thing, but you don't want to be personally involved. You don't want to actually have to encounter and get to know people and encounter challenging circumstances and people who have very different lives to you, which makes you feel a bit uncomfortable and, and, and have to encounter their circumstances and therefore give out emotionally. No, you think, no, I'd rather keep my distance and hold on to my privacy because that's what's most important to you, holding on to your privacy and not having to give out emotionally. Now, don't get me wrong. Do give, I'm not saying, my point here is not that that's wrong. Give to those things and keep on giving. That's not the point. My point is that the amount that you give is not the only measure of generosity, even if you do give very generously. Or another currency might be hospitality. So you will happily give money away, but actually when it comes to having people in your home, not so keen. You don't really want people coming and spilling coffee on your rug or walking all over or getting their muddy footprints in your house and invading your space. Hospitality is another currency of generosity. You might not be in a position to give lots of money away. But for some people, that's where they express generosity, is through opening their home. Hospitality is a currency of generosity. Time is another currency, as we just saw in the example with Jesus and the children. And we can become very protective of our time, and sometimes rightly so. Sometimes that's the wise thing to do, and part of what this series is all about is, is stewarding our time wisely, just as we are to steward money wisely and being intentional in taking time prioritizing things so we've got time to stop and to breathe in but we can also easily let that become an excuse for a lack of generosity with our time it's my time and I want to protect it at all costs I don't want anybody trespassing on that territory because that's the thing that you really value that's the currency that you really value and that you want to hold on to and protect so I was very challenged on this recently um, when I, I had some time at home, it was during the day, and I was having a quiet time. I was doing the Bible in a year, so tick, very good. Getting my rhythm of scripture and the rhythm of prayer in my life, all of those kind of things. I was, and there was a knock at the door, 
And I went to the window, the kitchen window, I had a quick look through, and there's a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses there, and I'm just thinking, no, I can't be bothered with that right now. I, I'm, I'm having my quiet time with God. I don't want to be interrupted. So I went back into the lounge, and I just looked down at what I, what I was just reading at that very moment, and it was Nicky Gumbel's notes on the, the passage that, that, that I was reading. And he, the line I was reading was, sometimes you've got to let your plans be interrupted by God. Oh, my goodness. So I'm, I'm like, okay, okay. So I got up quickly, and I went to the door, and they were still there. These two ladies are still standing there, very patient. Um, and uh, so I opened the door and I thought, okay, let's have a conversation. And they said to me, oh, um, do you know the Bible gives God a name? Do you know the name of God? And I said, yeah, I do. It's Jesus. And I said, I know you don't believe that. But let me explain why I do and why that brings such joy and power in my life. And so we had this kind of conversation about, you know, they're trying to convince me from Scripture that Jesus is created. I'm trying to show them from Scripture, well, clearly he's not created, but actually... You know, a, a created Jesus. There's no power of salvation with a created Jesus, and that, that's a whole other story. But we had this great conversation, and in the end, I just said to them, "Look, I know I'm not going to convince you, you know, with intellectual arguments, and you're not going to convince me. But what I will do, I'm going to pray for you that that you that God would open your eyes to see the glory and the beauty of the eternal Son of God and His salvation for you. And I, I have been praying for them, and I just thought afterwards, I thought, well. If I just kept hold of my time, that opportunity would never have arisen. I, I'm still praying for these two ladies that, that God would open their eyes, that they would be saved wonderfully. But what is the thing that you, re, that you really value? What is the thing that you really want to protect and hold on to? Because if you do that, if you are constantly protecting and holding on to what is really valuable to you, you can't be radically generous because generosity has to involve sacrifice. To be generosity. It has to involve a giving away of those things that are precious to you and open handedness with those things. You know, maybe you think you are very generous in all sorts of areas of life, but you, you hold people to account. People owe you because you've done lots for them, or maybe people owe you because they've hurt you. You withhold forgiveness because they owe you and they've hurt you. But radical generosity doesn't do that. Radical generosity doesn't hold things over people. It doesn't hold people to account. It doesn't just help people who can help you or hold grudges. And basically what I'm trying to say is that if you think you're generous, you're probably not. Bless you. You're probably not that as generous as you think you are. I think we see what we really like when we come under pressure, when we're stressed. My lack of generosity certainly comes out when I am feeling stressed. When I'm under stress, I get a bit snappy, get a bit irritable, I get moody, self-absorbed. I kind of retreat into my cave a little bit. That's my way of, of, of dealing with it. And at that moment, my wife Suzanne wants to talk about something that's going on in her life that's important to her. And at that moment, I really don't want to talk about anything. I don't want to, and I certainly don't want to talk anything about it's going to be taxing emotionally. But effectively what I'm saying in that moment is my needs are more important than yours. And that's not generous. What, what we're really like comes out when we're under pressure. How do you respond under stress? How do you respond when someone hurts you, when someone offends you? What do you breathe out in those moments? Because that will show what really lies in your heart. Because generosity, as I said, is a heart issue. What did Jesus do? when he was under the most stress in his life, when he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been taken to be executed, 
He's being mocked by everybody. What does he do? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he's had nails driven through his hands and through his feet and he's hanging on the cross in unspeakable agony, what does Jesus do? He takes his time to reassure one of the criminals being crucified with him. He talks to one of his disciples, John, and says, look after my mother. At his most desperate moment, when he's been cut the most deeply, what flows out of Jesus? Pure love, pure compassion. That's what flows out of his core. It's utter generosity. It's radical generosity. And just think how different our world would be if we were all like that. But clearly we're not like that because our world is as it is. And we can't make ourselves like that either. We can't make ourselves radically generous. We can put on a veneer of generosity and we can be generous in all sorts of ways. We can be you know, really nice to people. We can give lots away. We can be generous in all sorts of ways. But what is really in our heart will always show itself in different circumstances. Radical generosity permeates every area of life. It's about a life of self-giving that comes out of a generosity of heart. It comes out of a fullness of heart that overflows with generosity in all circumstances. But I think as human beings, we are very aware, and I think we're aware from a very young age, of the emptiness that lies in our heart. That there is a gap, that there is something that's missing. There's a sense of fulfillment that's missing. There's a, there's a happiness that is missing. And we're always searching for it. We're grasping for it. We're reaching for it. It's a bit like a, a, a biblical image would be uh, used in Jeremiah 2. It's about digging wells, digging cisterns that don't hold water. And it can feel like that. We're constantly digging, but these wells don't hold water. We're pouring stuff into these wells, but they're never full. They're just constantly empty. We're trying to find fulfillment. We're trying to find happiness in all sorts of places, trying to fill the emptiness that is within us. And if we operate out of that sense of emptiness, yeah, sure, we can go around helping lots of people, but why are we doing it? What is the true motive for doing that? What it boils down to is that you're using them, really, You're using other people, maybe because you have a need to be needed. You have a need to to have people tell you how much you mean to them. Oh, I don't know what I would do without you. But basically, it's completely selfish. It's not generous. Or it might be just to feel good about yourself, to feel proud. Like the Pharisee, I'm a good person. Look how good I am. Look how generous I am. But you're not, if that's the motive. That's not generosity. And so how do we become radically generous then? How is, it, how is it possible? And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't know Jesus, I want you to hear this as much as anybody else here today. How do we become radically generous? This is where we come back to the tax collector. Because with the Pharisee, we have someone who is technically pretty generous. He's outwardly generous, but he's fundamentally ungenerous underneath in his heart. But then the tax collector, we have someone who is technically pretty greedy. Tax collectors are greedy people, but as we'll see, there's something going on in him that will cause him to become generous. Because in stark contrast with the Pharisee, the tax collector stands at a distance. He's not there to be seen by everybody. He's not putting himself on show. He stands at a distance. He feels unworthy. His eyes are downcast. He's ashamed of his sin. He's beating his chest. There's a, there's a sense of despair and desperation in him. There is no hint of self-congratulation. There is no sense that God should feel obligated to him like we see in the Pharisee's prayer. The tax collector simply prays this, God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's asking for God's generosity. I don't deserve anything from you, God. I don't deserve anything. You don't owe me anything. I'm a sinful man, but please, please have mercy on me. He's asking God for his generosity and for his mercy, for his grace, because he sees the emptiness within. He has tried to fill that emptiness with with all sorts of things, money, greed, pleasure, experiences, whatever it might be, stuff. He's tried to fill it, but none of it works. He sees the emptiness within. He knows only God can fill that gap. Only God can fill that emptiness if he is willing. The really shocking thing, though, for those who are listening to this parable is where Jesus says, it's the tax collector who goes home justified. Justified means made right before God. He's approved of by God, accepted by God. The tax collector is justified, not the Pharisee. He goes home not right with God. And you can almost hear the muttering starting in the crowd. What did he say? Did he say the tax collector is justified? And they're sneaking glances at the Pharisees in the crowd to see how are these guys responding to, to what Jesus is saying here. Because in their minds, in the minds of those listening, the bad, sinful person has been approved. The good person has not. But then you see this pattern throughout, throughout Scripture and throughout the Gospels where you have a bad person and a good person contrast with each other. So for example, there's the episode where the sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet with oil, expensive oil, and you have a Pharisee there who's outraged by this. Jesus knew what kind of a woman this was. And Jesus commends the woman and criticizes the Pharisee. The bad, sinful person gets commended. The good person gets criticized. Or in the story of the prodigal son, you have the older son, the older brother, who, who in his mind is doing the right thing. He sticks around, he works hard, And then you have the younger brother who runs away, insults his father, takes the money, tramples on people, lives a life, makes an utter mess of his life. But in the end of the story, the younger brother is in the feast. The older brother's outside in the darkness in great anguish. Several episodes throughout the Gospels where you have a seemingly good person contrasted with a seemingly bad person. And every time, the bad person gets saved and the good person is lost. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because in all those cases, what you actually have is not a good person and a bad person. What you actually have is two lost people. Two lost people who are both trying to be their own saviour. They're trying to be their own God, but in different ways. You have two empty people who are trying to find the fulfilment they're missing in their life, but in different ways. Because there's really two ways to try to be your own saviour, to try to be your own God. There's the tax collector's way or the younger brother's way in in the prodigal son. Of, of trying to be your own saviour, which is just doing your own thing, trampling on people, destroying others to get what you want, to fill the gap with money and with pleasure and experiences and things. That's one way of trying to, 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 to be your own saviour, to fill that gap that we all have. And then there's the Pharisee's way or the older brother's way of trying to be your own saviour, which is by being very good, by doing things for people, by being a very moral person, giving money away. And so you are then in a position to be proud and say, God, you owe me. I'm an asset to you. You need me. And the Pharisee, or the older brother, the good person, cannot comprehend the idea that he is just as empty and just as in need of a saviour as the tax collector or the younger brother. 
So if you're a religious Pharisee type, if you're someone who's trying to be your own savior and, and pushing God out of the way, you might pray to God, but he's not your savior because in your mind you don't need a savior. You are your savior because you're such a good person. You're, 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 you're good, not like, not like criminals, not like other people who you consider to be beneath you. And that is really the mark of being a Pharisee, that you look down on people with self-righteousness, with superiority, people who you think I, could never, I would never be like that. You maybe, you, maybe you look down on uh, somebody who's homeless and thinks, well, I, well, I'd never get myself in that position, or someone who's caught in addiction, or someone who is a prostitute, or someone who gets into debt and think, well, I would never. You look down on people with self-righteousness and superiority. Let us examine ourselves. Seriously, examine your heart. Examine your heart for prejudice. Examine your heart for any hint of self-righteousness and looking down on others. There is no place for that in your heart if you follow Jesus. Time and again, the bad get saved, the good are lost. In Matthew 21, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Again, another utterly scandalous, shocking thing for Jesus to say. Now, he's not saying it's good to be a tax collector or a prostitute. And he's not saying there's no hope for the Pharisees. That they're getting rewarded for being bad and you're getting rewarded for, for being good. No, he's not saying that. The point is they're both trying to be their own saviour. But the difference is that the good person doesn't realise it. The good person doesn't know it. It's a bit like if you're ill, you're sick with a curable disease that you ignore, you refuse to acknowledge it and you end up dying from it. And in that situation, is it really the disease that's killed you? Not really, it's more the denial that you're sick and the refusal to do anything about it. It's the denial that there is a problem. The Bible is very, very clear that we all have a big, big problem. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That's every human being on the face of the earth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a big problem. We all need a saviour, every one of us, but many don't think that they do. Because I am a good person, I'm certainly better than those kinds of people. I am my own saviour. So the religious Pharisee type thinks, in terms of who should get into heaven, the religious Pharisee type thinks good people are in and bad people are out. And I'm not one of the bad people. Or the, the secular, liberal progressive of today maybe thinks oh it's about being open-minded. Open-minded, tolerant people are in, bigoted people are out. And I am not one of the bigoted people. But you're still a Pharisee. Because you're still looking down on people. You're still saying, thank you God that I am not like them. The gospel is not good people in and bad people out. It's not open-minded people in, bigoted people out. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. Jesus says at the end of that parable, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Or Brendan Manning, a Christian author, puts it like this. He says, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. The tax collector comes before God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's not just asking for sympathy. He's not just asking God, to, you know, please let me off, please go easy on me. No, no, he's asking for a lot more than that. Actually, the Greek word that's translated mercy means atonement. Atonement, appeasing the righteousness and just wrath of God. The, 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 the anger, the wrath of God that he rightly feels at the sin in our world. Our sin, my sin. 
The tax collector knows exactly what he is like. He knows he deserves to be cut off from God, as every single one of us in this room deserves as well. We all deserve to be cut off from God. And he is saying, please, God, please have mercy on me. Please atone for my sin. Please make it right between me and you. Make a way for it to be right between me and you. And this Greek word is only used in one other place in the New Testament, which is in Hebrews 2.17, where it talks about Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people. And when you realize what that means, that, 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 that line, Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people, when you realize what that means, that God is so holy, he's so other than us, and he so hates evil, he hates sin and cannot be in the presence of it, and we deserve to be cut off from God forever because we're so steeped in sin, we're so mired in sin, but he didn't abandon us in our sin, he didn't just let us go, he came as a man, he he inserted himself into human history, he came, Jesus came, and in the process, he gave up everything, he laid aside his majesty, he lost everything and gave everything right through to being tortured and killed, the most shameful criminal's death on a cross, the most agonizing death you could possibly imagine. And he shed his blood in order to atone for our sin, my sin and your sin forever, for eternity. And in that moment, he's not making a judgment as to how bad have you been or how good have you been. No, he atones for our sin, each one of us. When you realize what that means... You realize that asking for mercy from God, asking for atonement, is really asking for the extravagant generosity of God. It's the extravagant grace of God because generosity, by its very nature, costs. Generosity hurts. It is sacrificial. It has to be. And nobody ever, ever paid a cost or made a sacrifice like Jesus. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. So that we could be born again. Praise God. So we could be born again, so that we could be made new, so that we can be set free to be in his presence, to approach the throne of grace with confidence only by his blood, only by his atonement for our sin. Is that possible? To be a new creation. And that is the truth. That is the truth that we need to be breathing in constantly, all the time, through scripture, through prayer. That's why these are life-giving rhythms, because in those rhythms we spend time with God and we remind ourselves all the time of this truth of who God is and who we are in him because of what he has done. If we want to be people who truly breathe out generosity in every area of life and show the world who God is and what he is like, if we want to be radically generous, we have to breathe in the generosity of God and be so filled up with it that it flows out of us. Now, if, you're, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, let me encourage you, come to him today. Come to him today. Stop trying to find fulfillment and happiness in stuff that will just not do it. It's like digging those cisterns, those wells that just constantly leak. They cannot hold water. It's futile. Stop trying to find fulfillment in all the wrong places. God describes himself in Jeremiah 2 as the fountain of life, the spring of life, the fountain of living water. Come to him, Jesus says in John chapter 7. Come to me if you're thirsty. Drink the water I can give you. Only that will satisfy. Come to him this morning. Stop wasting life on on futile things. Come to Jesus. Come like the tax collector in humility, acknowledging your need of him, your need of a saviour. 
And ask him for the radical, costly generosity of God. Ask him to fill you with that, to fill you with his love, to come into your life as your Lord and as your Savior. Ask him. It will change your life. It will transform you. Come to him today if you don't know him. For those of us who do know Jesus, those of us who do follow Jesus and whose lives have been transformed by him, let me encourage you, continue to rely on his radical generosity. Don't start relying on your own righteousness. Don't start relying on your own good works. Continue to rely purely on his radical generosity and let it so fill your heart until that is what flows out of your heart. It's God's generosity that flows out of you so that when you give, when you help people, when you do things for others, it's not doing it like a Pharisee. It's not proud. It's not superficial. It's not looking for repayment or recognition. But it's as someone who realizes just how much you have been given undeservedly by God. It's as someone who realizes that you live in the good of the unearned, undeserved, extravagant blessing and generosity of God. The God who gave himself for you. He gave himself completely for you. Do it as someone who lives to give, just as Jesus gave himself. And as someone who is radically generous, just as Jesus is radically generous. So keep reminding yourself. Keep breathing in. Keep asking for the radical grace and generosity of God, the love of God. Let it fill you. Let it fill your heart and let it change you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus who lives to give, who changes the world, who breathes out generosity. Breathe him in. Breathe in his generosity and breathe out the grace of God to those around you. Amen.